Hi everyone, my name is Anastasia Lopatina and you're listening to This Week in Ukraine, a video podcast from the Kyiv Independent. Every week, I sit down with one of my newsroom colleagues to dive into Ukraine's most pressing issues. And this time, we're talking about life in frontline Donbass and how vicious Russian attacks have become routine there. I'm joined by the Kyiv Independent reporter Asami Terejima, who's been covering the Donbass since the beginning of the full-scale invasion. Asami, it's your first time here. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Asami, we asked you to join today because of what happened in Pokrovsk, a city in Donetsk Oblast, around 50 kilometers away from the active front line, from the hostilities. Because on August 7th, just a few days ago, Russia bombarded Pokrovsk with missiles, killing at least nine people and wounding 82 others. And unfortunately, as days goes on, these statistics tend to rise. Undoubtedly, this was a huge attack on a relatively small city. So. Tell us a bit more about what actually happened there, about this attack. The first strike happened at around 7.15 p.m., which is when, you know, just a few hours before the curfew, so people and, uh, you know, soldiers included are grabbing dinner right before they go back to their base or an apartment where they're staying at. Um, so obviously, you know, it, it wasn't, it, it was like a time when people were still at this, in the central part of Pokrovsk. And uh, I saw some pictures, people were still, you know, like resting and just, you know, enjoying their ordinary, like, you know, their daily life. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden at around 7.15, according to the officials, uh, the ballistic Iskander missile struck um, a residential building um, in this area where there is this central, it's, it's, it's considered a central square of Pokrovsk. Uh, then after, in, in 40, after 40 minutes, uh, there was... Uh, the Russian forces launched another uh, strike, this time hitting the Druzhba Hotel, which is which was adored by many journalists and soldiers. That was hit and several floors of the hotel was destroyed. So um, I don't think the hotel will ever work again. But also this hotel was not working for about five weeks uh, from what I heard, because after the strike on Kramatorsk, I, there was a warning not to use the Druzhba Hotel because um, the SBU has found out that Russian forces had the coordinates of the Druzhba Hotel and like they were tar- they were going to target it. There were a lot of military, um, uh, there were a lot of soldiers um, who were on their days off, but it's and it's not a military base. But you know, they Russians naturally, you know, they don't really they care. don't really care about that. So it's it's almost like a barrack situation. So for them, obviously, it's a target. Um, mm-hmm. So the journalists also have been warned not to use that hotel. So about five weeks, I know it's not it's it's been closed. Mm-hmm. The restaurant next to it was also completely destroyed. It was called uh, Creon uh, Pizzeria. All the many journalists, aid workers and uh, soldiers, um, after a day on the field or after, you know, their duty, they come to this restaurant a lot because uh, it was just a very homey place, you know. Why would Russians launch two attacks 40 minutes apart? Because uh, a local military official uh, in, uh, in this area said that... Um, 40 minutes is exactly like, you know, about the time when you can expect emergency service workers to be already working at the site. Mm-hmm. So the people who, the, the policemen and uh, the emergency service workers, um, the, they rushed in as fast as possible uh, after the first attack. Mm-hmm. So they were already working at the site only to come under another attack that Russia launched. So this, uh, from, you know, from what I see, it's a clear attack against uh, emergency service workers. So this is something that's called a double tap attack, uh, right? When they target the same place twice, knowing that people are going to rush in to help. And this is something that has happened in other areas in Ukraine as well. 
Yes, emergency service workers are constantly targeted in Hezbollah Oblast as well and in other areas where uh, frontline is pretty close. So what was the overall damage like? Like how many buildings were damaged? There were uh, 12 multi-story buildings that were seriously damaged, including this Jewish hotel, which, um, which I mentioned before. Asami, you've traveled all over the front line. Um, have you been to Pokrovsk and all of these locations that you've just described? Yes, uh, I have memories in each one of them. Um, I've been to Pokrovsk because it's a very convenient location for me if I'm working in like, the Avdivka area or in Vukhrida area mm-hmm. because it's not so far from there. But also if I need to, I can always go back to Kramatorsk on a bus. It's kind of like a hub for, for the Donbass area, right? It sounds like it. Yes, Kramatorsk is the main hub, but Pokrovsk was also a hub that many journalists used because just because of the convenience of the location. I was there in Pokrovsk in that exact area just the day before the attack and I was thinking how peaceful and how beautiful everything was, you know. I think that if I wasn't warned not to stay at this Jewish hotel, and if it was actually open, then I probably would have stayed. Uh, so it's good. I think it's it kind of also shows you like how you should take every single warning like that seriously, even mm-hmm. if you don't always know the source of the warning, because um, it could be, you know, it could be a matter of your life. Um, I was actually meant to go there on Monday as well, um, on the day of the attack, uh, because the plan was that I would go to the front line that day. And uh, I was lucky that the front line visit was canceled that day. And I went back mm-hmm. to Kiev because um, if I if it wasn't canceled, then I would have probably been in that exact area. So from what you've told us and from all of the news reports, it's clear that they've targeted those areas, the restaurant and the hotel, uh, because they've got info that soldiers were accumulating there. And some would say, well, oh, why are soldiers not completely separated from civilians and why are civilians put in danger like that? But that's just the reality that exists in all of these Donbass towns, right? Because there are many soldiers there and even if they're deployed there, they still go places to eat, they go places to buy stuff, to rest, they go to post offices, to Nova Posta, to pick up packages from their families. So they mingle with the civilians one way or another, and uh, there is no way to escape that, right? And Russia just doesn't really care about that. Um, and like we've seen the attack that killed the Ukrainian writer Victoria Melina, for example, it was also an attack on a popular restaurant, but in Kramatorsk, and that killed 12 people and injured 60. It was a very similar situation where many civilians together with soldiers were mixing. It's just interesting and also really tragic that that's the reality that Russia is taking advantage of. Yes, um, it's. I, I think it's completely normal for, I mean, if, you know, there's not so many places open in the Donbass, you know, so um, if there are good restaurants, obviously soldiers would also want to go, especially if their family, you know, if their wife and even their children are visiting, you know, then obviously they would want to go. So I don't think there should be a separation between, you know, which shops and which restaurants the soldiers can go to, just mm-hmm. so that civilians are more safe. Because first of all, because there's not that much options. And second, also because many businesses, uh, they operate based on the, the profits they make from the soldiers so um of course they need the soldiers to come so it's uh, so for the business to continue working in the Donbass they need the soldiers to come constantly and there's a hotel however in Kramatorsk which doesn't allow soldiers at all uh, likely for this reason so that they won't mm-hmm. be a target uh and also I would like to mention that I don't think that the Russian forces just found out that oh there are many soldiers staying in this hotel and restaurant and that's why they attacked I think they've known for a very long time of course um and I think I don't know why they chose at this exact moment to attack but um yeah there's not that much you can do against you know this you just have to again be comfortable with the fact that uh much can depend on the luck. So these terrible attacks that we've been talking about in Donbass, they're basically a routine because there are reports of an attack on this village and that village in Donbass pretty much every single day. 
and people die every day and houses are being destroyed. And it happens so often that it looks like, unfortunately, just no longer evokes the same emotion um, as an attack on Kyiv, for example. Um, do you get that feeling? Uh, yes. It, the more often it happens, the more peop- you know, people kind of get used to it. For the people of Donbass, especially, they've, they, the war has been going on since 2014. Like they've seen it pretty close or, you know, sometimes in some cases, their cities have been attacked or the site of heavy fighting since then, like Slovensk, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which was occupied for three months back in 2014. Mm-hmm. So, um, for example, what I saw in Chesivyar, which is a town about 10 kilometers uh, from Bakhmut, it's, it's getting heavily shelled, but mm. even the shedding, even, even, even when the shedding gets closer and closer, the civilians are just waiting for bread uh, near this administrative building, just yeah. like waiting there. That's where they get the humanitarian aid. But, um, you know, they're not even like flinching to the sound of it, running to a shelter, even though, you know, the, the, the regional um, military official is saying that everyone needs to rush to the shelter, but they're just waiting for bread because they need something to eat. This was going to be my next question, actually. How are people in all of these areas um, with pretty much constant shelling, how are they accommodating? How are they getting used to it? What have you seen? It's difficult because the more difficult the logistics to send the surprise to these towns and villages become, uh, the more expensive the food is, you know. For example, in Chasivyar, I know that uh, many local residents now can't afford a lot of food. There are also very few shops open, if at all open it is now, because I was there last time in June. Uh, so um, volunteers coming pretty regularly. The local authorities are also, you know, pro- working with volunteers to provide food at a given like humanitarian aid point. Uh, so they usually get like bread, oats and the buckwheat and... Uh, Just a pretty basic. Pretty basic, yeah. Things that last long so that they... Mm-hmm. If, if so, because the volunteers in very heavy shelled areas, the volunteers, they, they usually don't come often. So they come like once a week, sometimes twice. So that's why these food need to last long. And also they need to be pretty cost effective because they can't bring expensive food every single time. And are there actually many people who still stay in all of these areas? Because I went to Donbass since the beginning of the full-scale invasion only once. And I've been to several areas, including Chesivyar. And to my eye, those towns didn't seem deserted right? Like there were still people. I remember I went to grab coffee and there was a couple that was getting married and they had a wedding photo shoot and there were sounds of shelling, you know, and I could hear it. Everybody could hear it. And here they were getting married, young and happy in their 20s. And that really had an effect on me because I've I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen, you know, life just go on with constant sound of shelling in the background. Um, so, you know, how would you estimate how many people are still left there is it the majority the minority and also why are they still there why why do they not leave i think it really depends on like the town the city or the town or village because it depends on how close you are to the heavy fighting and how heavily it's getting shelled um but i would say that in general there are i think about 30 or 40 percent are left um Mm -hmm. and you know the rest have fled especially those with small children with just the official there are, according to the official figures, there are no children there. So it's basically the situation is that there were many elderly uh, who have grown up there, who have their houses there. Um, and for them, first of all, they're attached to the place and also their parents are buried there, but also they don't have the material uh, resources to leave to a different place. They flee to a different region. Then they get about 2,000 hivna per month, which is about nothing, $50, yeah. which is nothing. And if they're pensioners or if they have a children, then in this criteria, each person gets 3,000 hymna, which is also nothing. nothing yeah. yeah. 
to rent an apartment in Kiev, it's much, much more. Uh, obviously, they probably wouldn't come to Kiev because the prices here are high. Also, they, if they wanted to flee abroad, it's very difficult because they don't speak English. So um, the options are like either they stay in wherever they're at or try to find volunteers who can try to, who can find a way to free to a safer place in Ukraine, you know, almost like they, them doing, organizing everything for them. But that is very difficult. I've had, um, there was a guy who lived in Konstantinivka, which is uh, now pretty, you know, it's shelled pretty regularly. It's a site of pretty constant cluster ammunition attacks. Oh, it's happened several times over the past few weeks. And uh, it took him. It took us a very long time to co- to convince him to leave. But when he decided to leave, it was very difficult for him to find volunteers who would help him leave financially. So basically, the main factor that's stopping people is money, because it's really difficult logistically. It's expensive to leave, especially if you're old. And also, I mean, another factor that it's really hard to understand it if you're not in a war zone, if you're not Ukrainian, but you really don't have to be from the bus to understand it is just not wanting to leave no matter what. I mean, I know you've stayed in Kyiv um, for a while, while the full-scale invasion of Ukraine wasn't reveling. You didn't leave immediately. Uh, my family didn't leave immediately. Uh, it took days and days and days of relentless shelling and attacks for my family to finally pack up and leave. And there are so many people who just rejected the idea of leaving their house, leaving their soil. Um so there, there are many, there are many factors why people aren't leaving, right? It's really strange to understand, though. I know that many people in the West really don't get it. Like, why wouldn't you just evacuate immediately? Mm-hmm. You know, preparing your things and like preparing a trip when you don't know when you're going to return is very difficult and um, first of emotionally difficult, but also logistically as well. So like a lot of people have also stayed behind. But it is true that you've already mentioned that kids do get evacuated in a mandatory fashion, right? If the situation gets really bad, there is this plan by the government to evacuate the kids. Could you tell us a bit more how that goes on? You usually need the consent of like a, a guardian, so mother or father, uh, to evacuate the kids. And one of the guardians, like a parent, they must go with the children, right? So if the parents don't want to evacuate and the kids do, uh, there's nothing officials can do because you can't tear apart families, right? And this is what happened in Bakhmut for a long time because uh, the authorities were trying to convince the parents and the volunteers also. Mm-hmm. Uh, this unit called uh, White Angels, which is by right. the uh, the police who are now focused only on evacuation from hotspots of the war. They have been really trying to convince the parents uh, almost every day to uh, for the for them to make the decision to evacuate so that their children will be in a safe place. So that was something that we saw in Bakhmut as well in other areas because if the parents decide to stay behind, then the child also stays. And they were, um, as we know, we know how children were also killed because of the parents' decision to stay behind. For example, in Avdivka, I think there was an infant who was killed earlier this year, which is very, um, very sad because um, they how can an infant decide to stay in a war zone? It's not their decision. And this uh, infant, as well as other children who were killed during in such con- in such situations, they deserve to grow up and you know fall in love and like you know, live. Yeah, it's quite ironic, but also of course really tragic that one of Russia's main propaganda narratives uh, since the beginning of Russia's full scale invasion of Ukraine, but also years back since 2014 when Russia first invaded Ukraine. Uh, one of their main propaganda narratives is that Russia is saving people of Donbass, that uh, it's protecting people of Donbass. 
While in reality, people living in Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts are under relentless attacks basically daily, especially now since Russia invaded Ukraine fully. And so many cities are raised to the ground. You know, there are so many cities and towns and regions just gone, wiped out the map because Russia doesn't um, care how much it damages a town, how many civilians it kills in order to achieve its military, you know, objective. I mean, you can't really be saying that, you know, you're protecting people at the Donbass when you launch everyday regular attacks and also, you know, large intense attacks such as like the, what we saw in Kramatorsk railway station in April 2022, uh, which killed 61 people, including five children. Um, it, it's the people who were trying to, you know, evacuate from Donbass mm-hmm. because uh, the worst scale has begun and they don't feel safe. Yeah, it's being heavily shelled. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I remember that attack. It was really horrendous and bloody and it was like one of those really innocent places. It was a railway station where people were trying to evacuate. But Russia has done this both in Donbass and all over Ukraine as well. They've attacked humanitarian hubs. They've attacked evacuation points. Yes, and uh, we also remember that Mariupol, um, what happened in Mariupol, which was, of I think, uh, the most brutal attack that we've seen. Uh, that's the bombing of the Mariupol. Uh, drama theater, which according to investigations and official reports, it appears that we, that uh, about 300 to 900 people were killed, but we don't know. Um, we cannot, we cannot confirm the figure yet until the city is liberated. And it's very horrifying to think how many people were killed there after months of very brutal Russian seas and, you know, heavy Russian shelling mm-hmm. and heavy fighting. It's tens of thousands of people. We're now going to be moving to questions that we got from our community members. Uh, the Independent has its own community membership system. So it's really easy to support us just by going to our website at coindependent.com slash membership. There are various tiers and also an option for a one-time donation. But you can support us for as little as $5 a month. And you get really cool perks like access to exclusive events with the newsroom, discussions with editors and more. Uh, you also get access to a Discord server where um, there is everybody in the community community there and also the newsroom. So you can send journalists questions and we try to engage as much as we can. And of course, our favorite perk is that you get to send us in questions before every single episode of the podcast. And we try to answer them and address them as much as we can in every episode. So the first question that we got was, how will Ukraine, after it reconquers all of Donbass, deal with a significant part of the population that was pro-Russian or supported the occupation, and be a population that has been subject to 10 years of Russian propaganda and brainwashing. Uh, I assume the significant part of the population is quite arguable. I personally wouldn't say it's a significant part of the population, but what do you think? How is Ukraine going to deal with Russian supporters? And some of them are, in fact, Russian supporters in Donbass. Some of them are, but I wouldn't say that. Also, I wouldn't say that it's a significant number. Um, I haven't encountered that many. And mm-hmm. uh, soldiers have actually often talk, talked about this because for them, it's psychologically difficult when you're already, you know, you're defending these towns and cities and villages uh, with, with, with what could be the cost of your life. And uh, they have had cases where they think the local residents have given away their positions or given away their coordinates. Which does happen sometimes. It does happen. Uh, but so so it's very, um, in such cases, or like, for example, um, they don't, sometimes they don't um, appreciate how local residents 
might not really appreciate them. Like, what are you doing here? Like, you know, because of you, there's a war here and our mm-hmm. city is being destroyed. So there are some people who don't completely understand the picture because likely because they also consume Russian language news or... As um, the newspapers. community member mentioned, yes. they've been brainwashed. Yeah. Brainwashed to Russian propaganda uh, for years, you know, and maybe if, and also likely from the childhood because mm-hmm. they've been watching, you know, they've grown up in the Soviet Union um, and they've only been watching... You know, Russian, Russian TV. TV yeah. yeah. How do you think Ukraine will deal with those people? Is there anything we can do? I think that because Ukraine is a democratic country, um, and you know, it um, people are in which people are free to you know say anything and uh, you know have different values because every one of us is different. Um, I think that Ukraine will be able to deal with it, and uh, the measure as uh, as we know, the significant number of the population in Ukraine is very pro-Ukrainian and very pro-Western and, you know, pro, pro-democratic pro values. So obviously, um, I think that this is not an issue that we can expect um, after the war. I mean, there's also not much that we can really do. I usually just answer those questions like, what do people expect us to do about those people? Like lynch them, kill them? Like we're not going to do any of that. People can have the opinions, they do. And it becomes a real problem once they actively go and enforce those views like, you know, like feeding info about military positions to the Russians. Then it's a crime, you know, and the SBU and police are going to come knocking on your door. But if you're if you're just a supporter of Lenin, I mean, what can we do about it? Yeah, you're, you're going to be kind of canceled. The society is not going to like you. But practically, I don't think there's much we can do. Other than continue educating people through national policies, decommunization, cultural events, you know, just like strengthening our identity as a nation. But that's pretty much it, I think. And most of them are, you know, uh, the older population. So that I think that they won't really be the ones who are going to be making decisions after Ukraine wins the war, right? That's true. Hopefully. <laughs> the next question that we got was, presuming there will be no resolution to the war before winter sets in. Are there sufficient steps that are being taken to alleviate the added burden of cold and scarcity of resources for when it does kick in? So basically, we've we've heard all of these um, news reports about the next winter being worse than the previous one. And we, of course, remember the threat of blackouts that happened last winter. So the person is asking, what is government doing anything specific about it, especially in the Donbass area where... You know, there's already a problem with resources that it's just bound to get worse. This war will very likely continue throughout the winter, but I haven't really seen any sign of preparation um, for the upcoming winter. Um, I think that individually people are sort of like trying to prepare for it. For example, mm-hmm. if their window has uh, damages, that they're trying to yeah. cover it up because yeah. they people in Donbass, they've also kind of learned to be like independent over the yeah. years of war. And not so, rely on the government or <laughs> just years. doing yeah. everything by themselves. But there are volunteers who will likely probably be like buying blankets or doing providing some sort of help I Heaters, think in yeah. winter um but we don't I think that for the people with the Donbass I think surviving another you know a month financially and also like hopefully without a direct hit on their health um is probably a priority rather than thinking about something in like you know five months is it well Asami thank you very much it was very interesting to listen to you and stay safe on your next trip to Donbass <laughs> thank you Also this week, Ukrainian special forces successfully thwarted a Russian effort to hack the military's combat information system, Ukrainian security services announced on August 8th. The State Bureau of Investigation has also announced that 112 cases regarding abuses by military enlistment offices 
have been brought to investigation in Ukraine since the start of Russia's full-scale invasion in February of 2022. And Ukraine's military said that Russia continues to use chemical weapons in Ukraine. According to the commander of Tavria military sector, Alexander Ternavsky, Russian troops fired two artillery barrages with munitions that contained a chemical substance on August 6th. You can find our show on YouTube and all audio platforms every Friday morning. If you like this episode, please subscribe to us and like our content wherever you're listening to this podcast. Also, check out the Kyiv Independence Multimedia Project, Ukraine's True History, which is a series of articles and videos on YouTube about Ukrainian history and Russian myths that really need to be debunked. Please support the Kyiv Independent by going to kyivindependent.com/membership and also by subscribing to our social media, to our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening.